Thank you very much. Um, I <clears throat> hope you're not going to be too disappointed tonight. Uh, we all agree that this book is important um, and that how we read it and interpret it is, is crucial to us living out our faith and making it relevant on the front lines of, of, um, of our lives. Questions like what is the church? How are we supposed to live? What is our role in today's world? Issues of sexuality, ethics, relativism, other faiths are all bound up in, in how we use this book today. But I'm not able to do an academic theological examination of the doctrines of inspiration and inerrancy and canonicity and literary and, and historical criticism that others could do uh, very well. Uh, so I'm not speaking as, as that type of expert. I guess this is going to be a bit more of a, a devotional reflection on the overall story, which is what we're looking at tonight, of this group of books that have been compiled together. It's actually Steve and Jonathan that have the difficult task on Sunday mornings of taking a specific passage and telling us what that means. I've got the easy job of stepping back and looking at the big picture. Uh, Before we start, I'd like to sing, uh, and it's a hymn. It's, it's, It's a hymn... Uh, it's, it's immortal, invisible, God-only wise. I searched and searched for something that would lead us into the type of thinking that I want to do. Um, I know we don't sing lots of hymns here. It's an old, old hymn. I, I quite like it, and it fits with what we're going to do. I guess there's enough of us who know it. Uh, so we'll just sing four verses of that uh, as, a, as an introduction. I want to start off by reading just a few verses from Psalm 119. You don't need to look it up. Uh, the whole of Psalm 119 is about the law of God, and it's a very, it's a, where the psalmist gets very excited about loving, reading, and studying the law. And I thought it would be an interesting intro. Oh, how I love your law, verse 97. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare from me, for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Every single verse, he's talking excitedly about the law of God. And that's not even as much as we have. That's probably maybe the book of Deuteronomy or or the first five books. So this guy's getting very, very excited uh, about something that we maybe don't get so excited about sometimes. So, tonight... My starting point uh, is jumping over a lots of complicated, debatable issues. So we're going to start from that this book 
66 books as we have it today is the word of God. We're not going to ask how or why. A, I believe it's inspired. We're not going to ask how or why by Almighty God in a way that's different from all other books. And despite it being written in the past a, by a number of different people in a very different part of the world in three different languages that I don't speak over probably 1,500 years, that somehow it's relevant to us today. That's my starting point, our starting point. Unfortunately for us, however, it's not set out in a nice systematic manner. It doesn't begin with an introduction and a description of the attributes of God. It doesn't have a list of consistent requirements for his people. It doesn't have a policy on church governance. It doesn't set out targets and actions for the church today. It's not a constitution for a new religion. The code of the Presbyterian Church would be far better uh, a job at that if that's what we wanted. Uh, It's not, in other words, a set of instructions for us to tell us how to live in 21st century Belfast. It's just not written directly for us in that way. Instead, it tells a story of an unfolding relationship between a creator God and his creation, and particularly with one group of people who are chosen somehow specifically to be a vehicle for God's blessing to all the world and a people to whom we have now been invited to become a part. Now, as we read this, then, we do learn gradually about the character and the nature of this God. Um, He's creative, he's energetic, he's loving, he's restless, he's gracious, forgiving, holy, concerned with his name. He desires obedience from us. He requires worship. Uh, That's the God that this book talks about. And if we believe that that God has any interest in us or claim over us, then whatever this book teaches us about him, assuming he doesn't change, then it's going to tell us something of what he wants from us today, or at least something of how uh, how we should live today. Now, that's fine, but the problem is, well, we have to do a lot of work uh, to work out what it's saying to us. First of all, it has to be translated. Well, thankfully, uh, it's already been translated. Obviously, it hasn't. It didn't come to us in the New International Version English. Um, but none of it was written to us directly uh, by God or even by the writers. So we have to work out what was the context of the people who were writing it and who were they writing it to and why were they writing it and, and what's it saying to them. Uh, some of it is storytelling. Some of it is, is prayers. Some of it's poetry. Some of it's philosophical writings, some of its letters, uh, some of its theological reflections. It all functions very differently. Um, We'll look at maybe more about that if I get to another one of these uh, in a couple of weeks' time. But the way we read it today, typically in the evangelical world, we pick a few verses and we read them out and we try and find a little thought or a little moral from them. Uh, Sometimes uh, we take out a few verses and we shout them at somebody else and they'll take a few verses from somewhere else and they'll shout them back. And maybe we're taking verses from a poem over here and we're taking verses from a theological document over here. We're taking verses from a letter written to some people over here. We're shouting, we're using them all the same way perhaps. And probably that isn't going to be very helpful in understanding uh, exactly what this is all about. So tonight what we're going to do is step back from the detail 
and just look at the overall big picture and remind us ourselves of the grand narrative that this book talks about and maybe, if we have time, make a note of some of the patterns that, that, that we see in it. Now, looking at who's here, we, this is a story that we know. I'm very aware of that. Um, but it is useful, I think, and interesting to, to do this. Um, I certainly have found it useful and interesting. Um, so we're going to do it. And I do think it's the first step in, not that we're starting from the beginning in Fitzroy, but it, it's a useful first step in thinking about how the book works. Uh, for us today. We have to know what the big picture is. So, <clears throat> I've divided it into nine acts. Uh, I know there's lots of different ways we can divide it. Nine's quite a lot, but don't worry, we're not going to spend a lot of time on all of them. Uh, we're going to have some probably unhelpful graphics, which aren't really going to illuminate very much, but they'll keep me on track. Um, a story that we know, but let's see. Act one is the creation. Okay. So, uh, Genesis 1 and 2... As you know, it's a very short act. Uh, It starts off, as we know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible starts off by saying three things. It says, one, there's a God. Two, he made everything. And three, everything that he made was good. That's the foundational backdrop for everything that comes next in the rest of the book. We're not going to get into the creation story tonight, what it says and what it doesn't say and how we would interpret it today in the light of the science that we have unearthed about God's creation. It's clearly not an eyewitness account. Uh, It's clearly not a detailed scientific explanation. But it does do some things. It does teach us an intentional, ordered, creative act of God. God meant this to happen. And it also suggests God's blueprint for the earth. It looks, uh, it starts off with God and humanity living in communion together in the Garden of Eden. Uh, The role of Adam was to work and to take care of the garden, to name the animals, and then the scene sets with the making of Eve and the joining of man and woman together as one flesh. So whatever the detail is, it's important as a starting point of God's creation, the beginning of the rest of this story. Now, it doesn't last long. Act two, very quickly, we're in crisis. Uh, Like all good stories, a crisis is developed very quickly. So chapter three of Genesis, we're already into a problem. Um, Adam and Eve have disobeyed God, uh, and as a result, the serpent, who was the source of the temptation uh, of disobedience, the woman, the ground, were all cursed. The first couple were banished from this garden idyll. The relationship between them and God was broken. And then chapter 4 goes on to describe the knock-on effects of this disobedience into the next generations, Cain and Abel and others. In chapter 6, we've got widespread disobedience all over the earth, which leads to the flood. There's a little bit of a reset where God starts again with Noah's family. But very quickly, at the end of this act or section, Genesis chapter 11, uh, we've got the Tower of Babel. We've got a symbol of humanity uh, increasing their attempts to survive and develop without acknowledging or obeying God. So Genesis 1 to 11, these first two acts, full of symbolism, clearly not written by someone who was there as an eyewitness, certainly not all of it. Scholars sometimes call it the prehistory. Some of the stories are difficult to work out exactly what they mean. Uh, There's a lot of right discussion in the material about our, our role in caring for creation the role of of mankind in in looking after nature. 
uh, the role of nature to supply man's needs, good, evil, obedience, lots of theological um, material. But overall, it describes a relationship which is broken and something that needs fixed. Already we're into Act 3, and this is where things get more, in a sense, concrete, because we've got a timeline now. Genesis chapter 12 is the start of Act 3, and it's set in southern Iraq. We've got a Bedouin nomad who's wandering around with his sheep, probably part of a large, reasonably well-off family. I suppose it doesn't say that. But out of the blue, or maybe not, he's instructed by a god who he may or may not have known of to leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is a promise that we find in Genesis 12. It's repeated again in Genesis 15 and 17. Abraham, or Abram as he was, was promised three things. He was promised land, descendants. He was going to be the father of many nations. And he was promised that all peoples on earth would be blessed through him and his descendants. So this is a call of Abraham, sort of out of the blue, but it's the small beginning of God's plan to restore what was broken in the previous act. Now, later then, after Abraham, he moves to uh, the north. He eventually moves into Canaan with his wife. There are some very interesting little asides. Uh, They end up in Egypt. There's the story of Lot. There's the mysterious three visitors. Um, There's King Melchizedek. Um, Abraham, of course, is the foundational figure in both Islam and Judaism, as well as, uh, as our faith. You've got the love stories of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel. But oddly, instead of a, a growth of this family, if God's going to make them a great nation, uh, this, this section doesn't end with them uh, having more kids and growing and taking over uh, more land in Palestine or in Canaan. What we have is another crisis. We've got famine, and they end up in Egypt um, because there's enough food in the land that God sent them to. Uh, but through a convoluted chain of events, the prime minister of Egypt happens to be one of their family. Uh, anyway, it ends up um, that the family is in Egypt uh, in quite a strange context, and the section ends with the death of Joseph. So if you've ever got a Sunday afternoon free, read from Genesis 12 to 50, just in one go. It's a fast quite exciting narrative. There's a lot of Joseph in it, but we all know the Joseph story because of Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, So it's an easy read, and it's really interesting just to get a feel for the early days of how these people related to God. Um, So that moves us into Act 4. Now, we zoom on a couple of hundred years. Uh, The chapter opens very darkly. I know we know this story, but God's chosen people are slaves now. They're, they're being, they're oppressed. We've got an enemy called Pharaoh. They're, they're physically in slavery. They're in economic oppression. Um, they're socially excluded. And they're in spiritual darkness. There doesn't seem to be a, a, a lots of relationship with their, their God. And, and they're not a family anymore. They're a large nation. Um, So this is a very strange situation to be in. And chapter 4, or Act 4, is about their rescue. 
We know the story. Moses is called as the reluctant leader. Um, Charlton Heston uh, on the screen behind us. Demonstrates God's power to Pharaoh. Leads the people of, of Israel across the Red Sea and out of Egypt and into freedom, or, or maybe not. But the Exodus story, this story of rescue, is crucial in the Old Testament. In fact, throughout the whole Bible. It's recalled uh, constantly throughout the Bible as the main story of Israel's self-understanding of who they are. Who are they? We're the people that God rescued from Egypt. I want to read a couple of verses of what Moses said as he was about to die in the book of Deuteronomy uh, to the children of Israel just as they were about to move into the land of Canaan. That's a few years down the line. But what he says, he said, Ask now about the former days. Long before your time, from the day God created man on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything as great as this ever happened? Has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any God tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things your Lord, your God, did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. This is a theme that's repeated throughout the Old Testament. Who is Israel? They are the people that God rescued from Egypt. And that's the paradigm that we're given in the New Testament for, for our redemption as well. Now, very interesting what happens next. <clears throat> Moses leads them to Sinai, where God gives them the laws and the regulations for their future living as his children in the land that he's going to bring them to. So that's Leviticus, book of Numbers, and then as we've read, the book of Deuteronomy restates that just before they enter the land. We'll talk a bit more, maybe some other time, about the laws that were given at Sinai. It's a fascinating subject. They're very complicated. They've got, uh, they're featured in the West Wing. Um, it's the, the laws of Deuteronomy are a backdrop to the whole Old Testament narrative. We can't discount them as being not relevant to us because we're not wandering through the desert or living in, in Canaan. Um, we don't follow them, most of them. They're very strange, some of them. Some of them we still don't really understand. But we can't ignore them because God gave them to his people. And there are ways that we can use these laws to understand a bit more about God and what he cares about. And while we don't look at the law and transmit the law to us today, we can use the laws together and look at what sort of God would have given those laws and look at maybe what that kind of God would want from us in Belfast today. Whatever we think, they were designed to ensure that Israel was a distinct and a holy nation. Um, I think I've said this before, but there's some interesting scholarship, an Old Testament sociologist scholar, um, called Gottwald, looked at the type of society that Israel would have been if they had followed these laws, which they didn't ever really properly. But looked at the context of the other nations around Israel at that time, worked out that that Israel, if, he, if they had followed those laws, would have been so radically different from all the other nations around them that it would have been an amazing testimony to their self-belief or actually to their their God that they followed. So, story for another day, but a very interesting um, requirement of God for them to be distinct. <clears throat> One more point to notice about what we've just talked about. Uh, 
Look at what order things came in. God called Abraham, first of all, chose him to be the father of the nation. He then redeemed them or rescued them from Egypt. And then he gave them the law. Sometimes you hear people talking about the Old Testament as a period of law and grace comes in the New Testament. Well, hold on. God did not say, if you obey me, I will redeem you. He hadn't even given them the law. He he called them and chose them first. He redeemed them. And then he gave them the law. The purpose of the law was not in order that they could obey him and earn his love. Uh, The purpose of the law was to show them how they would live as witnesses to God after they had been called and redeemed. Again, a story for another time. Because we need to move into Act 5, (coughs) which is probably the longest section uh, in the whole book in terms of time. It goes from Joshua, Judges, right through to Second Kings. Uh, so we're in the land. Then Joshua leads his people into the land. Around, people say, 1400 and something or maybe 1200 and something. And it carries on until the end of Second Kings at 586. So there's about 900 and something years when Israel is living in the land. Uh, so it begins with the crossing of the Jordan in Joshua. There's then this gradual period uh, in another really interesting book, the book of Judges. So there's no king. There's just these leader judges that are called up every so often at times of crisis. You've got Deborah, Gideon, Samson are the ones that we know, Samuel. There's no temple. At the moment, at this period, God is, is living symbolically in a tabernacle, in a tent, which is, which is carried through the wilderness, and now it's pitched in a couple of different places in the land, but it's a temporary movable structure, which is his sort of dwelling place. Uh, but then Israel gets bored with that. They ask for a king. So Saul comes along as the king. That doesn't work out. God then chooses David, and something changes with David because God repeats to David some of the promises that he gave to Abraham. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says to David, I will make your name great. I will provide a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they can have a house of their own. I will establish a house for you, raise up your offspring to succeed you. I will establish his kingdom, establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me and your throne shall be established forever. Something different here. This is a promise to David, which is cast solid gold, a throne being established forever. And this is the period of the kingdom. David, of course, has looked back on the, as the high point of the life of Israel. He ruled in Jerusalem over all 12 tribes, and he was mostly obedient to God, although he did have his faults. So that story is found in First and Second Samuel. He's succeeded by his son Solomon, also a bit of a high point, but the critique of Solomon is a little bit more nuanced. We, maybe next time we'll look at some of that, some quite interesting comment on Solomon. Um, Solomon builds the temple, and God then moves from the tent and dwells in the temple uh, in Jerusalem. So, soon as Solomon dies, things begin to go downhill. The kingdom splits immediately into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, only the Judah kings are in the Davidic line. Uh, and we just begin a downhill descent where some of the kings are good, most of them are bad, 
and the general trend is worse and worse and worse. The high points, well, one of them is Hezekiah, who's one of my heroes. He was king of Judah in the south at the time of when the Assyrians came from the north of Iraq and captured the northern kingdom and demolished it, and that's the northern kingdom disappears from history. He did that partly by building a tunnel underneath Jerusalem to get the water in in a secret way so that the Assyrians who were besieging the city didn't realize that that was where their water supply was coming from. You can still walk through that tunnel today, as I've done, underneath the city of Jerusalem. Josiah was another high point. He found, found, was cleaning out the temple, and they found the book of the law, which they, things were so bad that they hadn't even realized that that was there. They read it, and they realized how badly their society had fallen from what they were supposed to be, and he belatedly recommitted the nation to following the law of God. But it was too late um, uh, to stave off God's final punishment. Um, the books were in Second, First Kings and Second Kings. They're quite comical in the way they judge these kings. You get a little comment at the end of each narrative. Asa, king Asa did right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. So Asa gets full marks. But Nadab did evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and of his sin. The consistent pattern was that the king, if the king was good, worshipped God, so did the people. But if the king was idolatrous and set up the idols and the high places, the people followed him. The worst was Manasseh. It says here, 2 Kings 21, Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out. He rebuilt the high places that his father, good king Hezekiah, had destroyed and also erected altars to Baal and he made an Asherah pole as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. Anyway... First and Second Kings, very exciting read. Key theme is obedience to the law. In fact, scholars will call these books Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. They're sometimes called the Deuteronomistic history because the way they're written, they're written as like a mark sheet on how each king and each era did in terms of following the law. That's how they're critiqued. So this is all about obedience, especially in the context of the idolatrous nations of Canaan who worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths and and other gods. Um, You've also got some of the prophets of this period, Amos, Hosea, Hosea Micah, and the first part of Isaiah, also commenting slightly from a different direction on the obedience and ethical rightness of Israel at this time. Uh, Yes, So that's uh, leading us into a complete disconnect and a catastrophe, which is the next act. If you read 2 Kings, it begins to race downhill and you realise that things are going wrong. I mentioned the northern kingdom disappeared, 722 BC. About 140 years later, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon arrives in Jerusalem, captures the city... Sets up a vassal king, first of all, but eventually just takes over, knocks down the temple, destroys the walls, and takes the royal family, the military leaders, all the nobility to Babylon, across the desert, uh, on the banks of the Tigris. And God's people, set up in the land to worship him, are destroyed. They're humiliated. The Davidic king ends, the the line ends. Um, God's enemies are victorious, and it's a disaster. Now, that needs a dedicated 
uh, look um, to look at that and the run-up to that. Second uh, Kings 24 offers one reason, <clears throat> but there are others in different places. It says, surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command, so it wasn't an accident, in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. So all the ups and downs, good king, bad king, forgiveness, uh, repentance, more disobedience, again and again and again, it gets so bad that God's desire for obedience finally trumps his willingness to forgive. His people are destroyed, exiled, and the whole thing comes to a, a collapse. And this is a fascinating period for the people who are taken into exile and, and have to live then under a government which is not supportive of them. It's hostile to their faith. They're no longer in their own state-sponsored theocracy. They're surrounded by people who believe in other gods and other values. Does any of that sound familiar? This is the cover from a Keith Green album, of course, um, called No Compromise. You can see the one guy standing up. He's not bowing down to the king of Babylon who's walking past and everybody else is. This period is fascinating. It's the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, um, Israel, followers of God, trying to work out how they live in an alien culture. Um, how can they follow God without the temple, without the priesthood system of sacrifices, uh, where they have to, what can they compromise with? Looks like Daniel compromised over food, but they didn't compromise over praying. Um, really, really interesting stories that I think us today could, could rediscover. Um, but a key importance of this period you look at, you've got the prophets Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, they begin to look, well, first of all, they begin to compile uh, the writings that they've got, and probably the beginnings of the compilation of the Old Testament happened in this period. But they also begin to look forward, the prophets do, to a restoration of the Davidic kingship. And they begin to talk about a figure who will come in the future to rescue them from foreign oppression and restore the kingdom to Israel. We'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, moving swiftly on to Act 7, because this doesn't last for very long. This exile is actually only about 70 years, because Nebuchadnezzar dies, Babylonians get displaced by the Medes and the Persians, King Cyrus comes and allows, them, allows some of them to go back to Jerusalem. So you've got Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, and Nehemiah going back over a period of time. They rebuild the temple, in Jerusalem, it's not as good as the first one, the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt and many people stay. Actually, not all, not, sorry, many people go back. But a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a Radio 4 documentary um, about a Jewish family who has just who left Baghdad in the post-2003 era. Their family and a number of other Jewish families have been living in Iraq and they trace their history right back to the exile. They've almost all gone now because of just how things have gone. But that history, this is 500 BC, Jewish, Jewish families and Jewish presence in Iraq right until the present day from this period. Um, so in this, this is the, 
So not all, not, not all go back, but many do. And the problem is that the restoration is never full. Okay, they go back to Jerusalem, but they never fully get control of their land. They're still under the thumb of the Persians, and then a little bit the Greeks, and then the Romans come. And they never get their sovereignty back. The royal line of David never reappears and is restored. And you get more development of this idea of the coming Messiah, an anointed one who's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And that's the context that we move into Act 8, um, which is what we know a little bit more. Okay, there's a few hundred years, actually, of, of a gap between the last post-exilic prophet and the beginning of the Messiah. But this is the context. And I, I, it took me 10 years, but I read a book by N.T. Wright, the first one of his big, long theological series. It really did take me 10 years. And it was a small piece at a time that I read. But he sets the scene. He describes the couple of hundred years before Jesus and describes this what it would have been like to be in Jerusalem then and the expectations that were growing and growing among different groups of a coming king that will come and get rid of the Romans or get rid of the, the Herod, Herod's family that were in charge and, and restore the Davidic kingship and, and bring back Israel again. Um, and it's a very, very powerful read. And this is the context in which Jesus appears, except... It all starts quite inauspiciously. He's born in a stable. He doesn't do anything for 30 years. He wasn't the warrior king that people were expecting. Maybe the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday was the beginning of people thinking that actually maybe he's going to come and do this and overthrow the Romans. But of course he didn't. He disappointed them, the, 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 the people who thought he was going to do that, bitterly. Um, he did not upright, lead them in an uprising against the Romans. But his teachings and how he was talked about by the other writers show, right from his reading of Isaiah in the synagogue of, in Capernaum, his teaching on the kingdom of God that we've done, gone through in, in John and other books, his interpretation of the Old Testament law in the Sermon of the Mount as, as, as he restated the, some of the law requirements, very clearly showed that he saw himself as this Messiah, this coming king that Israel was expecting, come to restore God's kingdom on earth, but not in the way Israel expected. Also in this period, you've got the Gospels and the, and the Acts of the Apostles and the preaching and the writings of the Apostles interpret Jesus not just as the Messiah, but as God himself. So the, the coming king, the Davidic king who was going to come back, the Messiah, the anointed one, the redeemer, was also God himself. That's what they work out. And, and God, this is God then coming back to dwell in Israel. Uh, and then through the Holy Spirit, uh, the idea of the church as God's temple, God's dwelling place. The meaning of the law being transformed, the promises of the blessing to the nations coming through Israel. You've got Peter and Paul's teaching expanding the idea that God's people are just Israel, moving out to God's people are the in invitation to be God's people goes out to everybody. So the New Testament interprets the expectations of the Messiah as being fulfilled in Jesus, but in a very different way from what they expected. The idea of Abraham's blessing to the nations, bringing redemption through the Davidic line, 
the chance to go back to what we started of a restored relationship with God, not just for Israel, but for all nations. And moving into the, the last chapter, uh, a little bit more than all nations, um, the early church then, as we know, Book of Acts and the Epistles and the Book of Revelation, probably books that we know better than the Old Testament books, this, these are showing us how the Christian community in those days was working out how to understand who Jesus was, uh, some of the things that, that, that we've just talked about, how to make this story and the message relevant to people who weren't from a Jewish background, um, working out how the early church should live and act. These are the bits that we sort of sometimes take. Oh, well, it's, it's written here, this, this and this, and we should do that. But a lot of those letters were written on the hoof were written by Paul uh, to a church that was experiencing a specific type of, 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 of issue. Um, but there are some clear themes that come out. This idea of God's people being expanded from Israel to being all nations from the particular to everybody. Very clearly seen, for example, in, in Revelation chapter 7 in this letter that John wrote, um, which we have written up here. Um, you've probably forgotten what that is, but the Arabic script on the wall is the verse in Revelation 7 where John describes before me was a great multitude that no one could count very importantly from every nation and tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb I haven't included a chapter after this one on the end times because the book of Revelation does give us a glimpse of, of that, of the future, of the New Jerusalem. But Revelation was written as an encouragement to the early church, so it still belongs in the period of, of the church, although gives us a very important glimpse uh, towards where we're all going. Desi Alexander, is he here? Has written a book, and really he should be doing this. He's written the book about this. It's called From Eden to the New Jerusalem which is, is where he traces this story, and I love the title, From Eden to the New Jerusalem, From God Dwelling in the Garden with Man, what we saw, where we started. The end result of this, the purpose of the whole of the rest of this story, is for God to get us back to living with him together, in, not in Eden, but in the New Jerusalem. Uh, so, there's one more slide, because, <clears throat> although... We're now, we've now run beyond the end of the Bible in terms of the New Testament church. The story's not finished yet because we're not at that throne with all nations and all people worshipping God together yet. Uh, and this is where we come in because the requirements of God for his people in the details of this book changed. Abraham's family and the, the early patriarchs, they didn't have the law. They came before the law. God had requirements for them. But the Mosaic law that came was for the people in the land. And then Jesus came, he reinterpreted the law. And today we are not Jews and we, are not, we don't see ourselves as expected to follow the Judaic law. But the New Testament church has lots more expectations as the church but that was the church in the New Testament. We're, we're in Belfast in the 21st century. So we're still looking to find out what, how we should live here today in, in, our, 
in our changing chapter because things are still changing for us. We're moving out of Christendom. We no longer have effectively a state-sponsored church in the West. We don't have as much public sympathy uh, for our faith as we did. We're not a key part of the public sphere the way we were. We're moving into slowly an era similar to the exile where followers of our God are increasingly going to be misunderstood and misrepresented and our beliefs going to be less accepted and we will find it increasingly difficult to make the truth claims about Christ and our God that we would like to make. So that's, we've come to the end of that quick overview, but just in the two minutes that are left, I want to, I want to pick out a couple of themes that come out of this. We wanted to do this story, that overview, which I know we know, but to remind ourselves um, as a sort of a preparation for, for whatever we do next. The meaning of the Bible is not found in the pithy sayings that we take out and stick up on a tree or, or quote out of context or proof text to each other. The big issues that we, we are going to wrestle with today, the purpose of the church, ethics and morality, sexuality, multiculturalism, sectarianism, how to deal with poverty, oppression, what is mission in a post-Christian era, all of those things that we need to grapple with. We need to understand, first of all, the nature and value of God himself. Who is this God? What's he like? What did he do in the past? How did he act to enact his values with his people? And what does he require? Well, what did he require of his people? in all these different eras. And only then, and only when we begin to explore what that God is like, what did he want of his people, why did he want that, then we can begin to look at where we are today, what would that God require of us, how should we live today. And any interpretation that we do from this book must take into account what's been revealed as the nature of God, and if we assume that God doesn't change, And it must be faithful to what he has said and what he has done in other parts of Scripture. Now, that doesn't get into any of the specifics and the issues and the questions that we all have. That's for another day. But a couple of quick themes just to finish with. Three things that come out of this. Uh, First of all, this is a story of God acting. When I first came up to Queen's, David Patterson, who I don't even know who that is anymore, he used to stand at the front of CU and he used to say, God is ascending God, and he used to do that. Um, And that has always stuck with me. God acts, God created, God called and chose and redeemed. God gave the law. The Israelites didn't work it out in, in committees. It was given to Moses. God defeated the enemies. He called the prophets. He banished them into exile. He brought them back. He sent Christ. He called Saul on the road to Damascus. God was the actor, right from Abraham through David through Christ. A number of scholars have noted that through the Old Testament, Israel understands God in verbs, not in nouns. They don't say God is all-powerful or omnipotent or or omniscient. They say, God did this and God did that. And actually they say, God did that for us and God did that for us. It's a very concrete understanding of God, a God who does things. And the job of us is to respond to how he acts. So then the second thing, underpinning all of this story that we've just gone through, it's a story about restoration. From Eden to the New Jerusalem. 
The God who once dwelt in the garden with his creation is moving to get back to dwelling with us in, in the new Jerusalem. All the other stuff uh, in between is hides from Abraham, the, David, the law, the kings, the exile, Christ. All of that story is about how to get back to the situation. Other scholars have called it the mission of God, God's mission to redeem us. Not just humanity, not just Israel, and not just the church, and not even just humanity, but there are glimpses in the New Testament that it's a cosmic reconciliation, uh, reconciling all things to himself. And lastly, this is a story, and I think this, this helps me a lot, this is a story about a relationship, bizarrely between an almighty creator God and a, a very fallible, specific, concrete group of people. But it's a relationship. It's a relationship of love, of grace, forgiveness, of patience, of second chances, of third chances. It's a narrative full of ups and downs. There are failures, forgivenesses. There are godly leaders. Then there's more disobedience and more failure. And then there's more forgiveness. It really is a roller coaster throughout that Old Testament period. And only after a period of consistent evil in Second Kings did God's need for holiness trump his ability to forgive or his desire to forgive. Fundamentally, God wants a relationship with us. That's what this is about. I love that rabbinic saying that if you hear in different forms, God created man because he loves stories. So that's what this is about. If God has requirements for us today, which we expect that he does, they're in the context of this relationship. They're not out of spite. If God wants us to live a certain way and has a certain ethical standard or whatever, it's, not, it's, it's out of the context of relationship. And our response should not be one of, oh, let's do what he says, let's follow the rules. Our response is one of a relationship of people who want to respond to a loving God and want to obey and want to worship him. So, finished at five to eight. Our first task, I would say, in interpreting, wanting to try and work out what this means for us, is to get to know better the God who's revealed in this book. Now that's, I know, a very evangelical cliche to know God, but I think that's a lot to do with what this is about. If we read this, the more we read it, the more we read the stories, even the narratives, not even the narratives tell us how God's like. And of course, not everything is revealed here. Um, but Christ is revealed here. Uh, we don't know Christ uh, in person, but he's revealed here and Christ reveals God uh, even, even more clearly. So I would say that that's our first task uh, and that's where we our starting point. And if we do anything more on this, then I think uh, we do well to just to fit, always keep in, in context this big picture and what God's trying to do from Eden to the New Jerusalem. I'd like to finish by reading a, a, a couple of verses from Colossians, which talks, just gives us a hint about this, this cosmic reconciliation, because it's not just about Israel, and it's not even now just about the church. Paul says, or the writer of the Colossians says, he is the image of the invisible God, this is Christ, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. 
All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the firstborn. He's the beginning, firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God, and remember the story, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things in earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's where we are.